0: Let's have a word of prayer um, and ask God's blessing as we begin today, and then we'll jump right into 1 Peter, and you can open your Bibles there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, Lord, we think about the Lord's day, and we recognize your wisdom in it, Lord, because you give us a day that you tell us to set apart, to meet in your house, to meet with your people, to uh, be surrounded by the fellowship that we can have, and to take in your word, and to be encouraged by all of those things. And Lord, we recognize and confess right away at the outset today, we have great need of all of that. And uh, so thank you for each who's found it possible to be here today. We pray you'll bless in our class, be with the other classes, uh, be with Matt as he teaches and, and uh, Bill. And uh, in all of these classes and even some of the, the, all the ones that are under us with the young people, would you just watch over there and encourage people today as, as we try to open our hearts and as we try to wait upon you for those things that you may have that would encourage our lives and help us to be more like Christ, I pray that you'd help me today, Lord. Um, I pray that I'll be able to say those things that need to be said today to adequately present the material, but at the same time to leave us with those things that are devotional and practical and helpful as we think about the broader subject of suffering and realize that it's a part of life and ask you to help us in it. And so I pray these things now in Jesus holy and wonderful name. Amen. All right, so our lesson today is lesson number two, and we are in verses 13 through 25. And again, I just want to say, I'm painfully aware of the fact that we can't talk very much about so many things that are in these verses. In fact, uh, this week I probably read through first well, I, I read through the book of First Peter probably twice and then I read through chapter one, oh, I don't know, probably five times. And uh, I just keep bogging down, you know, and I can't do that in the class, <laughs> you know, because there are just so many things in these verses, so please forgive me if I don't uh, have time to talk about the thing that, that, that you're interested in from a verse, but if we don't get time to do it in the class or there's not, you're not inclined to ask a question, if you catch me sometime, I might be able to have an answer or I might be able to include something that would, would address that. Let's look in our Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We are going to read these verses here for today. So it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you... Is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, "You shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each man's each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your your forefathers Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. I want to remind you of what we talked about last week ever so briefly as we start this morning that a lot of people who have any familiarity with 1 Peter know that the key thought or theme of the book has to do with suffering. I'd like to take it a little bit further as I mentioned last week because it's great to know that there are places in the Bible that you can go if you want to uh, read up on suffering and see what God has to say. But to me, it's more practical to take it a step further and ask the question, okay, you've told me that the book of 1 Peter has to do with suffering. Just what precisely does it tell me? And I would like to suggest, by way of a thesis statement, that Christ is our sufficiency in suffering. And I think that's the message that the book conveys. I mentioned the roadmap. So here is an outline of the book that develops this statement because his salvation sustains us. That's where we are now in this chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10 section. But we are going to get, Lord willing, to his example guides us. There, there is, uh, and also the fact that his, it, there's a little bit of overlapping in these thoughts, because you could say his humility is also part of his example, but uh, looking at this third thought, because also his humility inspires us. And be thinking about how do those thoughts tie into this idea of, Christ is our sufficiency in suffering. Because as I mentioned last week, folks, you know, we, we cannot escape this. God, God sees fit to give seasons in our lives that we are as verse, chapter 1, verse 6 says, which is this is kind of the first hint. Look back to that verse a moment, part of our text last week. In this you rejoice, though now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Well, there are seasons. And at times, God permits us each to enter into these seasons of. As I mentioned, the King James translates this: "You're you're in heaviness." Things things come along in life that are pretty heavy, don't you agree? And we don't always have that. Thank the Lord; He, he kind of knows when when we need it and when to back off. And there's no temptation or trial taken us, we're told, but such as is his common to man. And in all of that, God is faithful, and He won't give us more to bear. That verse tells us: First Corinthians ten. 12 or 13, whatever it is, that, that uh, then we can bear. But he does allow this, and he, he puts it in our lives. It's good to know that, that he also provides that sufficiency in himself, how to deal with it, thinking about the fact that the world really doesn't have that. But this is something that is the great privilege and, and availability of Christians. So in this first section, asking ourselves the question, all right, how does... In the the broader context of suffering which may come into our lives through whether it's persecution or any number of other formats uh, or iterations that suffering can take, how does his salvation sustain us? So what we were looking at last week by affording us a living hope, let me call your attention to the key verse on this, verse number 3 of chapter 1 again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You actually have the word hope occurring three times in the chapter. It also occurs in verse uh, 13 and verse 21. I don't want to go back and go over all that ground again or we won't have enough time for progress on today's, but but you'll certainly find that hope is a strong thought coming across in chapter uh, one. So first of all, his salvation sustains us because Part of our lives now is a living hope. Can you think just for a moment by way of recap of going through what some people go through, what some of you have gone through without having a living hope? Because what people have in this world, many of them around us have is is basically futile and doesn't have any substance to it, but what you and I have as Christians certainly is real and definite and is a, a tremendous asset that we have. Today, what we want to talk about is a second thought that's a part of Christian salvation. And I'm just reminding you that I'm sort of using that terminology. You're going to hear me use that that terminology, Christian salvation, because the whole thing I'm trying to do as we talk about this first section in particular is to draw a contrast. Because not only does the world around us have no hope, but the world is filled with religion. Isn't that right? The world is filled with religion what hope does that religion offer? And I mentioned last week about the Baha'i and going there and yeah you know, they show you where he's buried. Well, great. What's that doing for me? Not a great deal. And, and, the, and the sharp contrast that you have between going to Haifa and seeing that, then going to Jerusalem and going to Gordon's Calvary in the garden tomb and seeing the empty tomb. It's a huge difference. All right, so what else is a part of Christian salvation? Well, Christian salvation also involves the new birth. Where do we see that? We actually already did. In chapter 1, verse 3, we have it mentioned. I just read this. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So it's mentioned there. But then drop down to verse, and this is part of our verses for today. Verse 23, here's the second reference to it. Where it says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. I want to pause right at the outset, folks, and just ask you to think about, just as I challenge you to think again about what kind of an asset it is that we have hope in the midst of our trials and difficulties in this, in this world and in this life. Have you ever thought about the implications of the new birth in the context of suffering? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And what we're going to find out is there are three things I'm not saying three things is the limit. I'm saying three things that are thoughts here that we're going to talk about. Things that come into our lives, or are a part of our lives now as a result of the new birth. That first of all, we have a new nature, so our response to suffering is different. We also have a new resource, and I'll, I'll get to what that is in a few moments. We have a few moments. We have a number of resources, but Peter singles one out. We'll talk about that. And finally, we have a new family, and I, I talked about that already a little bit even in my opening prayer. Let's jump in today. So what about a new nature? Well, the first thing when you start thinking about the new birth is you realize the new birth is a work of God. The new birth is not of our doing. This is not something that you and I can accomplish. When 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 you think about Jesus interacting with Nicodemus, what did he say? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit and Nicodemus struggled with this because his concept of salvation was just not where the Lord was going but the new birth is a transformation it's a radical transformation it's something that God accomplishes and that's that's brought out in our translation of that verse number three where it says who according to his abundant mercy has caused us to be born again unto a living hope now we know it's a divine work but how does it actually play out in other words When you look back on your salvation experience, how did that play out? Well, you heard the word of God, right? Through some manner or means, you came in contact with the word of God and and more particularly the gospel message. And then you responded. And this is exactly what's developed for us. So it's like in verse three, you have the divine side. This is a divine work. God brought this about in our lives. For us, as we look at it from the human standpoint, how, or from perspective, How did that actually happen? Verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And as we get down a little bit further, verse 25, he says, and this is the good news. This is the good news. This word is the good news that has been preached to you. And so in verse 25, as also, I believe it was verse, yes, verse um, 12, you notice it says, those who have preached. The good news. In our verse 25 now, and this is the good news that was preached to you. So here's just a minor thing, but it's kind of interesting, especially if you're a student of the original languages. Well, you have several words that can be translated preached, and probably your broadest one is is simply a word that means to proclaim. And by the way, these are non-technical, so we can't really get off the hook and say, well, preachers do that. That's why it's translated preached, Uh uh-uh, sorry. That doesn't let us off the hook because every one of us is in a position to proclaim the good news. But then you get into a more particular word when you start talking about the gospel, although the other is certainly broad enough to include it. And that's the word that's used here, which is to evangelize. Euangelizimai is to to preach the gospel, to, to evangelize, to tell the good news. And that's the word that's used here. So that's how it played out I mean, we recognize that God is the orchestrator, God is at work, God is sovereign. God sent that person, or, or means, or tract, whatever it was, uh, into your life. And all of, all of this just seemed to be from a human perspective, but now we look back and we realize that God orchestrated all of those things. But from our perspective, what happened? We heard the message, the Holy Spirit began working in our hearts and lives, and eventually we responded by god's grace to this message and then we've been born again so this is not of our doing but what what now happens is is that we as a result of this become god's children and you you've heard the old expression before about sometimes it's 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 used with maybe a little bit of a mildly negative connotation sometimes we use the expression when we're talking about somebody's kids and they they seem to mimic some bad patterns that we've, you wouldn't say that about anybody here. But sometimes we see this, right? They seem to mimic some bad patterns that that maybe we've identified in their parents. And we say, well, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. What are we basically saying? Well, we're saying that we kind of have the nature of our parents, well, that sort of pertains here too. That God is, God is the author of the new birth. He's our heavenly Father. And so part of this now is that we share a new nature. And if you look at what, what, is, uh, what is given to us here in this, this is what he gets into right away. He says, as obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed. Now, if you're used to the old King James translation, it says fashioned. And frankly, I like that a little better, although this is not a bad bad translation. But again, going back to some differences in words, this word is a word that that emphasizes fashion. I like that for the simple reason that, you know what? If you're a man, and I don't even know what the current style is, but the last cycle was it went back to narrow ties. You say, wow. People wear ties less today, I guess, but ties have always been a part of my life. So don't worry about the wide ones that you have. Just wait 10 years. And if long as they don't have stains on them and stuff like that, you can just resurrect them and think people think you have all new ties again because now that's in style. Fashion changes, right? That's the emphasis of this word. And so he says, don't be outward, your outward fashion. Don't let it be what was according to the former passions of your ignorance. But instead, this new nature is, He who called you is holy, so be you holy in all your conduct, since it is written. So this is not arbitrary. This is not some preacher just saying, Well, you need to be holy as a Christian. No, Peter documents this, and he says, We find this in the Old Testament. Since it has been written, so he calls Scripture itself to endorse or emphasize. This is the authority behind his exhortation. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, where do we find this? Well, I've given you three places. Interesting, they're, they're in Leviticus. Leviticus 11:44. We're not going to turn to these, and I don't have them on the, the screen either. But that's where you'll find this. Chapter 19, verse 2, chapter 20, verse 7. Let's go to the New Testament, because now you'll be able to see a contrast. So, if you're thinking about Ephesians chapter 4, and, and again, I, I tell you, there's a lot of correlation between 1 Peter and Ephesians. Paul's letter is Ephesians, Peter's is 1 Peter, and there's a lot of correlation. So what does he tell us about the old man, which is kind of the biblical terminology? Our popular terminology is nature, but the biblical terminology is old man. So it says the old man is corrupt, right? I'm using the King James, but he's corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. But it says the new man is after God created in, do you remember the two things that are there? Righteousness and true holiness. That's Ephesians 4.24. This is God's nature. There's no corruption in God, and God cannot lie. So, what is God? Righteousness and true holiness. and. Again, we don't have time to really get off into a big discussion of what all of that is, except you need to realize that righteousness and holiness as as characterized in the Bible, not just negative concepts. And this is the way a lot of people conceive of this is as well, you know, holiness just means I have to to stay away from all these things and not do all these things. And (laughs) it just popped into my mind, but I think my my father-in-law's, one of my father-in-law's favorite things to talk about that bothers him a little bit is that he talks about a place, uh, and it's a, it's a holiness work. And you go into their tabernacle, and so just like if, you, if, if the church wanted to prominently display a verse or something here, it might be between those two Christmas ornaments or whatever, right up where everybody could see it. That's what they have in this tabernacle where they have these meetings, and it says, holiness unto the Lord. And he talks about the fact that, well, he asks, he's asked numbers of them, what's that mean? And the closest he's gotten to some answers are things, well, you don't, don't go to movies. And maybe another example just like that. Well, folks, it's a lot more than staying away from things we don't think are helpful, and I'm not getting into that discussion this morning, movies, but it's a whole lot more than, st- it's, it's, it's having these positive qualities in our life that reflect who God is. And so, this is God's nature, and he says this is where uh, we are as Christians now, that this is, the, this is what we want to reflect. God is preeminently holy, and so how, how then does this, how does this discussion that we've had so far fit into the context of suffering? Well, so then if God is preeminently holy and we realize that a grace, work of grace has taken place in our lives, and we realize that we're in the process of not being conformed to the former lusts in our ignorance, but being conformed now to God and His nature, we realize it's a process going on, right? And if it's a process going on, how does God accomplish this in our lives? Well, I'm back to chapter 1, verse 6 again. So look at that verse. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, and look at the next two words. If necessary. To me, there's a a great blessing in those words because God knows. God's never arbitrary in what he allows to come into our lives, even though at times perhaps we may think it's severe. Nevertheless, God isn't arbitrary. God knows exactly what we need. And so he says, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. Let's tie that in with a, a well-known passage. You can turn if you want. I'm going to turn just simply because I don't have the verses here and, and read these for you. But I think you're familiar quite a bit with this passage where Jesus is talking about uh, the Father is the loving vine dresser. And he says, I'm the true vine. This is John 15, 1. But my Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus is the true vine, but the Father is the loving vine dresser. And what does he do? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he pats you on the back and says, boy." Sometimes. But other times, he says, well, I'm seeing some progress. I'd like to see more. And so what does it say? He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. All right, let's, let, let's look at this now. I've got two words I want to get you to focus on. They're different in English and the same in the original. He prunes. He cleanses. Same word. You say, well, why didn't they bring that out? Because nobody talks about cleansing vines. That's not our our manner of speaking, right? We prune vines. But when you bring it over into the spiritual realm and think about the spiritual application, this is precisely what God does. He's sanctifying us. So he's cleansing us more and more, and more and more revealing to us impurities and things that we need to do to be more like he is. So since this is part of the Christian experience, and suffering is just one iteration of all of that, then our outlook as Christians, because now we have a new nature, is different. You know, when you don't know the Lord and these things happen in your life, what do you tend to do? You tend to resist. You tend to question. You tend to uh, blame. And even as Christians, there are times when I think that's, that's the reaction, reaction of the flesh. Something comes into our life and our response to it is maybe at first negative. But since we've been born again and since we have this new nature and since we realize that God is holy and He wants us to be holy, now we recognize, well, when suffering happens, well, somehow God is in control. Somehow God knows that this is a good experience for us. and He's trying to make us more like he is through this process. So our response to it is different. Our response is to trust and yield, but the response of the old man is to resist, to struggle, to blame, and to lash out. So this is the whole idea of the new nature as we've talked about it here. Let's move to our second point because we just, you know, there's so much here you could just talk about, but we have this new resource Now, I'll give you a hint by rereading verse 17, but I don't really want to talk about it at this point. I want to introduce the foundation for it. But he says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Um, Forgive me, but I want to just make another little contrast for you by way of words. All right, so... In chapter 1, verse 2, or verse 1, he says, He is writing to those who are elect exiles. Now, this translation uses that word again in verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according, conduct with fear yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. But it's two different words. And they're related, but different. And I always like to illustrate synonyms this way. You know, it's like two overlapping circles. There are, there are shades of meaning that they share in common. If you think about two overlapping circles, how much do they overlap? And it sort of depends. But if they overlap to any extent, then they share shades of meanings. But there's also a sense in which there are some differences. And probably a better translation is, to me, I like preserving the distinction in the terms because it, 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 it then gives us two very useful things to think about how God characterizes our time here as his children now that we've been born again. We are on the one hand exiles, chapter one, verse two. That's a good translation there. Here, the word is the word that means a sojourner. Now you know, when I was a boy, if you were gonna be a sojourner, you had to be on your best behavior. Now it doesn't matter. We have a lot of sojourners here and a lot of them aren't even legal, but if you were here, for example, let me use this illustration. Let's say you were here on a student visa. Well, you best be abiding by the rules, right? Or you might get sent back home. So it's interesting, this thought, because we're also, we're strangers. And we're going to come across this again in chapter two, verse 11, where he uses both words. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There they both are, but there the translation distinction is preserved. Sojourner, exile. And Paul's counterpart to this in Philippians is to say, for our citizenship is in heaven. All right. Having said that, what foundation is there in the new birth? Acceptance into God's family. It's made possible by the redemptive work of Christ. And you just have a... a an incredibly rich passage that unfolds that unfortunately again not a lot of time but knowing he says in verse 18 that you were ransomed so what's the foundation how can god bring us into his family does he just kind of wave a wand when we're totally depraved and fallen beings and we are characterized as christ is the opposite he says as of a lamb without blemish or spot we're characterized with all kinds of spots and blemishes Moral impurity shot through and through that affects not only our nature but also our conduct as sinners. We're sinners by nature and by choice. So how does God accomplish this? Well, he accomplishes it because of redemption. Salvation isn't just a matter of sweeping our sins under the carpet so people don't see them anymore. Salvation is a matter of dealing with that sin problem. And so, knowing that you were ransomed. And again, I just wish they had translated here, redeemed. The ESV is actually very, very good at, um, a lot of modern translations don't do this, folks, and I, I have a bone to pick with those who don't do it because I think the doctrinal terms are incredibly important, and I don't know why, but somehow it seems like there is has been, maybe still is. I don't know. You mentioned doctrine and people don't want to be troubled by it. I think they see it as an impediment to everybody getting together. Well, yeah, <laughs> that is meant to be. Because the whole bond that we share is the truth. So if we compromise the truth, what do we really have? And uh, But to redeem um, is the tr- it's, it, This is the word. Now, it's true. What is to redeem mean? It means to set free, someone is now free who wasn't free before, by the payment of a ransom. So it's not that ransom is a bad translation. It's just that if they had used redeemed here, it would have brought a little more clearly into our mind this doctrine that we need to know as Christians. How does God accomplish redemption? Well, he says here, you've been redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers Remember I said about the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Um, and, and this is a reference just to how we've come into the world. If we have lost parents, then we have lost values you know, many, many times. So, but he says, not with corruptible things or perishable things such as silver or gold. Again, just a bit of a pause here, but Peter really likes this concept of perishable or corruptible versus imperishable or incorruptible. You have four occasions for it. Chapter 1, verse 4. I'll just give you this verse 18 here and verse 23 where he talks about perishable, imperishable. Well, if you think about it, man's solutions always involved what is translated here corruptible things or perishable, that which is perishable. We're, we're impressed by silver and gold. Great wealth impresses us. So, for example, it's like a lot of things, it changes. But the reason it changes is because the value of the company changes with the stock market. So who's the richest man in America? And so a lot of people would put their hands up and say, oh, I know it's Bill. No. Uh, Or is it um, Jeff Bezos, Amazon? Well, he retired. but. He's not CEO anymore. How many vote for him? Well, no, as of a week or so ago, it was actually Elon Musk. Are you impressed? I mean, I'm impressed with what some of these people have accomplished. I don't, well, I better not get into that. <laughs> don't especially care for Bill Gates, but... In any respect, some of these people, like Elon Musk, you can like him or not like him, but he's a, he's a certified genius. He really is. So I'm impressed by some of their accomplishments and what, they've, what they have done. All right, here's another milestone that happened, I think it was just last week. If not just last week, early in the week, late the week before. Maybe you saw a story. Apple, the company, Apple, is the first US corporation to surpass $1 trillion in market cap. No, not one. Three. $3 trillion market cap. That happened when Apple stock went a little bit beyond, in the early 180s. 180, it actually got up to like 183, something like that, and change. Probably isn't true today because during the week, the stock pulled back to somewhere in the low 170s. But is that impressive to you? That's my whole point. Is that impressive to you, $3 trillion? I can't even. I can't even figure how much money that is. That, I mean, I, I don't have the ability to, I mean, I, I know it's, more, it's three more zeros. But trying to figure out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you had a stack of dollar bills, do I make it to the moon or do I make it to... Jupiter. Or, I don't know. After a while, there's only so much you can do with all this money. But God's not impressed. That's the, God's solutions don't involve those kinds of things because they're subject to decay. And the problem that you and I have isn't a material problem. It's a spiritual problem. And so God has a spiritual solution. And the spiritual solution is that we have been redeemed not with things that perish, not with things that change like the stock market or your bank account or interest rates or whatever else. Something that never changes because it's incorruptible. The precious blood of Christ, who is without blemish and who is without spot, and his blood has an inestimable value, and an eternal value. And that's what your salvation rests on. Aren't you glad? I hope so. But because sin has now been successfully addressed through redemption, and this was the whole point, we have a resource as God's children that we didn't have before, and that's prayer. So there it is. If you call, verse 17, on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He says because you realize you've been redeemed. You have access to God's presence now that you didn't have before. Does that pertain to suffering? Oh boy, that one ought to be kind of obvious for us. Don't we need this resource of prayer when we go through these trials? Through these heavy situations in life, and the question is, just like without hope, where would we be without prayer? And God has provided that resource for us. And I love Hebrews chapter four verses. Uh, did I put that there? Yeah. I love Hebrews four fifteen and sixteen. For we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted or tested, like as we are, yet without sin. And the upshot of that, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every time I read that, I think to myself, in time of need, when's that? About every minute. But there are seasons when we have greater needs, right? And when, when we sense that we are in those seasons, then it's wonderful to know that we can come to God and we can find mercy and grace to help. All right. The clock is always our foe here, so we go to the third point real quick. Maybe we'll even have a moment at the end. But we have a new family. How's that a resource? How's that help in suffering? Well, if you have the right kind of family, it's quite a a help. You find comfort and support in your family. Let's look at verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, or as the King James would say, the love of the brethren. This, this is the word, Philadelphia. You know this word, city of brotherly love and all that good stuff in, in Greek, Philadelphia. So, brotherly love uh, is what it means. But it assumes something that the King James just sort of brings out in the way it handles this by saying, a sincere love of the brethren. We have something now that we didn't have before. We have the brethren in this family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we come on the Lord's Day like today, and we can interact. And, you know, some of the best interaction that you ever have is just asking people how they are. Because if you ask some people how they are, and you let them talk to you for a moment, all of a sudden you start realizing, man, I thought I had it rough. I'm serious. You know, it just really works that way. And As a pastor, I used to say, you know, there's some people in our church I was always afraid to ask, them how they were doing because they were going to tell me at length. But, you know, I would just sit and listen or stand and listen for as long as I had time to do that. But I I I maybe didn't always have the opportunity to tell them this, but there were people in our church who were my heroes. And I'm sure there are people like that here, too, because you watch them go through what they go through and you say to yourself, I don't know that I could do that. And you admire, as Paul would say, you admire the grace of God which is in them. And from that, you are encouraged. And, you, well, I don't think I could do that, but God has supplied grace for them. So we have this family, this new family. And it is in, as in any family, there is mutual bonding. There is the love of the brethren. There is comfort. There is support in suffering. The only thing I want to leave you with as I close up this thought and maybe have just a moment for any questions is, you know, it is a two-way street, so try not to be like the person, and I know our personalities differ, okay, so this is not a rebuke, but sometimes people will come to church and they just come in and plop down and never talk to anybody, never say anything to anybody. That's okay if that's just how you are and that's just how you're made up and so forth. As long as you don't go home and complain, nobody talked to me. Nobody even shook hands with me. No one—I bet they don't even know my name. Because, you know, it, it works both ways, you know. I mean, as you show interest in people, people show interest in you. And you get out of church, I'm just giving you a, a, a human observation, you get out of church what you put into it. So if you say, well, I didn't get much on Sunday morning from the message, well, did you think to take a little time to prepare your heart before you came and maybe read the text over or pray about it? I don't know. I'm just making a point. This family that we have is designed by God. This is a part of God's wisdom in bringing us together on the Lord's day. So by way, quickly, of conclusion, Christ is sufficient in suffering. And this might seem superfluous to you, but let's realize the gateway to the new birth is gateway to salvation is the new birth. We're talking about the salvation sustaining us. So have you been born again? Worth asking to be sure you can answer it knowing that the answer is yes. A couple minutes. Any questions about anything that we've talked about today? Or you have witnessed a miracle. We're done ahead of time. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your love. Would you just bless us today now. Bless Pastor Andrew as he comes to minister the word of God to us. And bless us, Lord, as we uh, go on through the day and use this to equip us, not only for what we're dealing with personally and in our lives, sometimes that we can't share with others, but you know, but also um, use it to be a blessing um, for our coming week uh, and, and to equip us for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.